This past summer, uh, my family went on a great vacation out west. Uh, we started uh, in the Badlands, and then we went to Mount Rushmore, and uh, we finally ended up um, in Rocky Mountain National Park, uh, where one evening uh, we took a, a trip on the uh, highest paved road in Colorado, Trail Ridge Road. Uh, this was the highlight of the trip for me as uh, the scenery there is just uh, absolutely uh, breathtaking. Um, in fact, uh, for Eva, it was, it was literally breathtaking as uh, she was on the side of the van going up that was right on the edge and at uh, many moments was just a few feet, even sometimes less from some very precipitous drops and uh, my driving may or may not have contributed uh, to her discomfort, but uh, once we made it to the top, um, it was a fantastic experience for us all. Now, uh, one of the really cool things about Trail Ridge Road for a science nerd like me is that at one point it, it passes over the, the Great Continental Divide, uh, the place where depending upon which side uh, of the divide rainwater falls, it will flow either to the Atlantic Ocean or the Pacific Ocean. So, so just think about this. Literally an inch makes the difference between whether or not a raindrop ends uh, up literally in two places that are thousands and thousands of miles apart. Uh, well, today uh, we're going to look um, at a passage that's going to show us another great divide. In fact, a much more important one. Uh, it's the divide uh, that's an eternal divide, uh, the divide that determines whether or not we experience eternal life or eternal death. Now, we find this great divide in Luke chapter 23. So um, if you're not there already, go ahead and, and turn in your Bibles to uh, Luke chapter 23. And while you're getting there, uh, I want to remind you that last week we, we began a short Christmas series in which we are looking at the four major events in Jesus' life. His incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. And, and we're looking at these things uh, in hope that uh, we'll develop a deep, and joyful appreciation for what Jesus did for us in his first coming, and also a fervent desire for his second coming. Now, I said this last week, and I'm going to say it again uh, this week, that this is what Christmas is really about. It's about celebrating all that Jesus did for us the first time, and doing so in such a way that it gives us a deep yearning and a deep longing for when he comes the second time. When we celebrate Christmas, okay, that should lead us to cry out, come Lord Jesus. Amen? Amen? All right. Now, uh, last week we talked about the incarnation. Uh, and so today, as I alluded to just a moment ago, we're going to talk about the crucifixion. And so I want you to follow along with me uh, as I read now. We'll pick up in Luke 23 and verse 32. It says this, Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, 
This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. Now the word uh, that comes to my mind um, when I read this passage is weighty. This is weighty weighty stuff, and it really uh, makes me feel inadequate to, to preach this message. In fact, I don't really believe there's any human who is adequate to preach it. And so here's what I want us to do today. I want us to go to prayer, and I want to ask us to um, ask for the Holy Spirit's help as we try to digest everything uh, that we see here in this passage, all right? So we join me in prayer. Uh, Father, we come to you today, and um, this, is, this is holy ground. This is um, truly the, the great divide of all of history. Uh, as one commentator says, this is where all roads lead to and this is where all roads diverge. Uh, and Lord, um, we aren't capable in and of ourselves to, to comprehend all that's going on here, all that this means. Um, we're not capable of even beginning to scratch the surface of, of what's going on here. And so we desperately need your help. Uh, we're very familiar with this passage, many of us. So, Lord, I pray that you will uh, teach us to us and, and open our eyes so that we might see it afresh today. And, Lord, I've been praying all week, and I want to pray again that, above all, uh, you will bring people to yourself today all across our campuses as people watch online as they hear this message later this week. And we pray that you will do it all to glorify your great love and grace and mercy in your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen. All right, I, I need to say right from the beginning that there's no way one message uh, can address everything um, in this passage. And so today I simply wanna highlight three things that, that Luke wants us to see about Jesus. Three things that very clearly lead us to the great eternal divide of Jesus and his cross. First, uh, Luke wants us to see that Jesus is innocent. He wants us to see the innocence of Jesus. This is the most repeated theme uh, in Luke chapter 23. We see it in the first 31 verses where the Roman authorities continually proclaim Jesus' lack of guilt. We also see it in verses 41 and 47 
where a criminal and a centurion uh, do the same. Uh, in fact, uh, in verse uh, 47, uh, we see the, uh, the centurion making the, the clearest statement when he unequivocally says this. He says, surely or certainly this man was innocent. Now, we need to realize that, that none of these men uh, were followers of Jesus before the crucifixion. In, in fact, they were all at least somewhat hostile to him. Uh, therefore, uh, they didn't come into this just kind of blindly following uh, Jesus uh, despite evidence to the contrary. All right, they weren't like many people who t- today who just seem to, to blindly follow political and religious leaders despite all this evidence that they actually shouldn't be followed. No, all of these men, okay, they examined the evidence and as a result declared that Jesus was blameless. Now, Luke has deeper intentions than simply revealing Jesus' innocence, however. He also wants us to see the stark contrast between Jesus and everyone else in the story, how Jesus is guiltless and everyone else is guilty. Pilate is guilty of injustice. The religious leaders are guilty of treachery. The soldiers are guilty of mockery. The criminals are guilty of treason. And even the crowd is guilty as they cry out with bloodlust, crucify him, crucify him. Every single person in the story other than Jesus is guilty. And get this, this means that Luke is trying to show us that so are we. You know, it's easy to be horrified about the events here in Luke 23, isn't it? It's easy to be horrified, and and really, we should be. But what should horrify us the most is that we're just as guilty as everyone else in the story. Yes, we weren't there that day. We weren't directly responsible for crucifying Jesus. But if we had been there that day, we very well might have been. At the very least, can any of us say that apart from God's grace, we wouldn't have been part of the crowd crying out for him to be crucified? And let me just tell you, if you don't think that that's the case, that means that you haven't come face to face with the wickedness of your own heart. You see, the the, the sin of the participants in Jesus' crucifixion is the same sin that is residing in every single one of us. Therefore, while we may love the cross, and again, we should, to quote John Stott when he says this, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. We all, to a man, to a woman, are guilty of Jesus' death. And therefore, before we can bask in the greatness of what he has done for us, we must first see the horror of what's been done by us. Second, here in chapter 23, Luke wants us to see the suffering of Jesus. He wants us to see the innocence of Jesus, but he also wants us to see the suffering of Jesus. Now, I'm confident uh, that most, if not all of us, are very familiar with how Jesus suffered on the cross, right? 
So, so we've um, read about it, and we've watched depictions of it, and we've heard lots of sermons about it, and that's all good, but it also can unfortunately be a dangerous thing because if we're not careful, we can all too easily become numb to what Jesus suffered in our place. The word excruciating. Let's talk about the word excruciating for a second, which um, in the English language is the most severe word for pain, right? When you're describing the, the greatest pain that you've ever felt, you would say that that is excruciating. Well, that English word comes from a Latin word, which means out of the cross. We have the English word excruciating because of the pain that people felt and went through when they were crucified. So, so this being the case, I want us to walk through, uh, just for a few moments, Jesus' crucifixion again today, praying uh, that the Holy Spirit will awaken within us a fresh understanding of what he endured in our place. So, so, so it began with this. It began with a scourging. Scourging. Luke only alludes to this in passing uh, in our text. Uh, but before Jesus is led to the cross, he's, he's first mercilessly beaten with a whip that has bits of metal and rock and bone attached to it. Roman scourgings were so brutal that it wasn't unheard of for prisoners to, to die from them. And, and while that wasn't the case for Jesus... It's very likely that by the time the soldiers were done whipping him, that he was nearly unrecognizable and was barely able to stand. This is why verse 26 tells us that Simon of Cyrene was recruited to carry the cross for him. Now, the cross in this instance was actually just a cross beam, a long cross beam, very heavy, maybe weighing as much as, as 100 pounds. Now, now, Jesus, by the way, uh, was much smaller than the average man today, probably like 5'2 or so, maybe weighing 120, 130 pounds, all right? And so you can, you can understand why after ne nearly being beaten to death, he wasn't able to carry the cross beam. So, so Simon, okay, uh, they, they lay the cross on Simon, uh, and then they parade Jesus through the town, up to a place known as the place of the skull. Now, it's called the place of the skull uh, because that's kind of what it looked like. It was a rocky uh, outcropping. Uh, it was a hill uh, overlooking the, the city where people could see. You see, what the Romans used crucifixion for uh, is they used it to deter crime and rebellion. So they made crucifixions as public as possible. So they, they pray Jesus through the town so as many people can see. He's surrounded uh, by soldiers. Simon is following behind him. And then they take him. And when he arrives at the place of the skull, they throw him to the ground. They take the cross beam from Simon. They shove it under Jesus' back. And then they take a couple of nails. Now, these nails are not the nails that you are normally used to. They're nails that are five to seven inches long. And they take the nails and they hammer the nails through each of his wrists, attaching him to the crossbeam. Once they've attached him to the crossbeam, they then take forked poles on either side of the crossbeam and they lift him up and they attach him to another upright pole. Probably had a notch in it, put it in the notch, and there he is hanging. And as he's hanging, they take another nail 
and they nail it through his feet so that he cannot move. And he basically is there dangling by his wrist with his raw back against a rugged piece of wood, gasping for breath, his life slowly and agonizingly ebbing away. Now, uh, we really can't describe it in words how horrific it was. But to make matters even worse, Jesus was um, crucified naked. This is something that's not always evident to us because most of the time the pictures that we see has a loincloth on. Uh, But again, the Romans were trying to deter crime and rebellion. And in those days, nakedness was much more shameful than it is today. It, it, It was completely humiliating. And so the Romans crucified people naked. Now, I know it's not pleasant to think of Jesus this way, right? But we need to, if we're going to fully appreciate what Jesus went through for us. Corrie Ten Boom tells of how she came to do so in her book, The Hiding Place. It's the book in which she describes her incredible account of what she and her sister Betsy experienced at the hands of the Nazis. She writes this, I had read a thousand times the story of Jesus' arrest, how soldiers had slapped him, laughed at him, flogged him. Now such happenings have faces and voices. Friday mornings, the recurrent humiliation of medical inspection. We had to maintain our erect hands at sides position as we filed slowly past a phalanx of grinning guards. How there could have been any pleasure in the sight of these stick-thin legs and hunger-bloated stomachs I could not imagine, nor could I see the necessity for complete undressing. But it was on one of these mornings while we were waiting, shivering in the corridor, that yet another page in the Bible leapt into life for me. He hung naked on the cross. I had not known. I had not thought. The paintings, the carved crucifixes showed at least a scrap of cloth. But this, I suddenly knew, was the respect and reverence of the artist. But oh, at the time itself, on that other Friday morning, there had been no reverence. No more than I saw on the faces around us now. I leaned toward Betsy ahead of me in line. Her shoulder blades stood out sharp and thin beneath her blue mottled skin. Betsy... They took his clothes too. Ahead of me, I heard a little gasp. Oh, Corey, and I never thanked him. Have you thanked him? Have you thanked him for what he endured for you? For the shame and the misery that he went through in your place? Now, that said... Well, we tend to focus on the physical suffering Jesus experienced. That actually wasn't the worst of it. That's really what we we do tend to focus on is the physical suffering. But the physical suffering actually wasn't the worst. And that's really not even what the gospel writers nor the rest of the New Testament focuses on. Oh, yes, the physical suffering was horrific. But Jesus' spiritual suffering was even greater. Let me explain. In verse 44, Luke tells us that while Jesus hangs on the cross for three hours, from noon to 3 p.m., darkness covers the land. 
Now, in the Old Testament, darkness represents God's judgment. And so what's being pictured in God causing, okay, basically the sun to go dark, is he's picturing that the sins of the world are being placed on Jesus and God's wrath is being carried out against those sins. Peter explains it this way. In his first letter, he says this, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus took upon himself on the cross all of our sins. We talked about this last week, 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. On the cross, Jesus took the full weight of all our sin and guilt and experienced God's righteous judgment for those sins. Now, we all know what it's like to feel guilty, right? We all, we all know that. You know that feeling, right? It's a terrible feeling, isn't it? Isn't it an awful feeling? And I'm really not talking here about the guilt you feel uh, when you sleep in a little late, right? Or you eat two pieces of dessert, all right? Or you don't exercise. I'm talking about the weight, the the guilt that you feel for your sin. So so take that feeling and and then imagine that you're you're not only feeling the weight of, of your own guilt, but you're feeling the weight and the guilt of the sins of everybody. And and then imagine that you're responsible for none of it because you were perfect. And and then you take that feeling and you magnify it when, when you realize that God's wrath is being poured out. Imagine that self or soul crushing, soul annihilating feeling. That's what Jesus experienced on the cross. That's why Matthew and Mark record Jesus crying out with incredible anguish, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, do you want to know what the answer to that question is? Why did God forsake Jesus? He forsook Jesus because Jesus had all of our sin placed on him. And because God is holy, God can't associate with sin. And and therefore, God had to turn his back on his son. He had to sever temporarily the relationship. Now, the the feeling of guilt is a terrible feeling. But you want to know what a feeling is that's worse? And we all know this by experience. It's by being abandoned by someone you love. The most awful, terrible feeling in the world is to be abandoned by someone you love. And Jesus had had a perfect relationship of love with his father from all eternity. And now in one moment, that relationship is severed. He is forsaken by God. And why? Why is he forsaken by God? He's forsaken by God so that we don't have to be. We don't have to be forsaken because Jesus was forsaken for us. 
And so I want to ask you today, have you thanked him for this? Have you thanked him not only for what he did for you physically, but more importantly, what he did for you spiritually? You know, friends, the crucifixion demands a whole host of responses from us. But one of the primary ones is thanksgiving. We should be incredibly thankful for all that Jesus went through in our place. Can I tell you why this is so important? It's so important because whether or not, and maybe I put it this way, the degree to which you are thankful for what Jesus did on the cross will determine the direction of your life. That's why, by the way, this is why we talk about the cross and we preach the gospel every week. Because it's only when we grasp this and it's only when it makes us thankful that we're truly going to live for him. Which leads to this. The third thing that Luke wants us to see here in Luke uh, 23 is the salvation of Jesus. The innocence of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus. But then finally, the salvation of Jesus. Now, I'm not referring here, of course, to how Jesus himself was saved, but rather to how he saves us. Uh, There's a great deal of irony in verse 35 um, where the religious leaders admit that Jesus had saved others and yet at the same time fail to see that he would ultimately do so by not saving himself. So they, they scoff at Jesus. They mock him, right? They say, you saved others. Why can't you save yourself? If you really are the Christ, come down from that tree. But what they're missing is that, well, yes, Jesus could have saved himself. If he would have saved himself, he couldn't have saved anyone else. He saved us by not saving himself. You see what the religious leaders and pretty much everybody miss is that Jesus didn't come first and foremost to save us from our physical problems or our financial problems or our political problems. He came to save us from our spiritual problem. He came to save us from our sins. And the only way that he could save us from our sins was by dying in our place and paying the penalty that we deserved. And Luke doesn't come right out and explicitly address the salvation that Jesus brings here in chapter 23. But he does point to it in three different ways. First, in verse 34, he records Jesus asking his father to forgive those who have just nailed him to the cross. So, so in this, we see that Jesus, his heart, his desire is that through his death, even those who are directly responsible for it will be saved. So, so friends, let us look today Let us look to the cross and see the forgiveness that is offered through Jesus. Let us look and see that if he is willing to save those who nailed him to the tree, then he is willing to save any one of us. Can you see that today? Can you see one of the most wonderful truths in the world? That no matter what we have done, no matter who we are, we can experience the forgiveness of our sins no matter what those sins may be. Anybody want to say hallelujah to that? Second, in verse 45, Luke tells us that during the three hours that darkness covered the land, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. 
Now this curtain was the curtain that blocked access to the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies was the place that only the high priest could go one time a year on the Day of Atonement. This curtain was 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, and four inches thick. And it represented, it really symbolized the separation between God and man. However, as Jesus is crucified, as Jesus breathes his last, that curtain is torn in two, representing that Jesus has opened the way for us to enter into God's presence again. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us this. This is a great passage. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. On the cross, Jesus made it possible for us to draw near to God. Because of him, we can enter and live in God's presence, not just for a moment, but forever. Friends, I wanna, I wanna tell you today that, that you can have a personal relationship with God. He offers that to you today. And by the way, if you are a believer, he actually urges you, invites you, encourages you. You might even go as far as plead you with you to come boldly into his presence. Why? Because of what you have done? No, but because of the blood of Jesus. Third, and most significantly, in verse 43 You'll note that Jesus tells one of the criminals who's being crucified with him, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, do you know what paradise is? Paradise is heaven. Paradise is an eternal life. And so what we have here is something that's extremely instructive regarding salvation. The two criminals crucified with Jesus illustrate the great divide that we talked about at the beginning. They represent the two ways of responding to Jesus. You'll note that the, the first criminal responds with anger, with hatred, with mockery. He responds with unbelief, and as a result, he experiences eternal death. He experiences an eternity where he is separated from God forever. That is his reality right now. The second criminal, however, responds with repentance and faith. And as a result, experiences eternal life. When he dies, in just a few short hours, okay, after this conversation, he enters an eternity with Jesus. Notice what Jesus says. Today, you will be with me in heaven. Now, I want to look a little more closely at the second criminal's response. Verse 41 tells us that he takes ownership for sin. Can I, can I just say this to you, Okay. Um, whether or not you are a believer today, I, I think it's really important for us to understand uh, and, and to recognize um, the, the second criminal's response because it's the response that leads to salvation. And it begins when he takes ownership for his sin. Note that he admits that he deserves to die that he is getting the, the, the right and righteous judgment for 
his sin. At the same time, in verse 42, he recognizes who Jesus is and that Jesus is able to save him. And so in faith, he asks Jesus to do so. And as a result, that's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus grants him eternal life. Now, let's talk about what what this means for us. The second criminal shows us how we can be saved. We're saved when we repent of our sins and place our faith in Jesus just like he did. Just like him, we we don't have to to live a good life. In fact, can can I ask you this? Did the criminal have any opportunity to do good works in order to save himself? He's dying on the cross because he didn't live a good life, because he wasn't a good person. Insurrectionist means that, that basically, um, he, or the criminal here means that probably he was an insurrectionist too. He probably had committed murder, all right? He, he, he's, he doesn't make it to heaven because he's a good person. How does he get to heaven? He repents of his sin. He recognizes, okay, that he can't save himself. He sees who Jesus truly is, and he asks in faith for Jesus to save him, and Jesus does. You see, we don't have to live a good life to be saved. We don't have to be a good person to be saved. In fact, what we have to do is admit that we haven't lived a good life and that we aren't a good person. We have to own the fact that we deserve death just like this criminal did In order to be saved, we first have to admit that we need to be, that we desperately need to be. And then, as we admit that we need to be saved, we have to simultaneously believe that Jesus is the one and only one who can save us. We have to look at Jesus on the cross and believe that he died in our place so that through faith in him, our sins can be forgiven and we can have eternal life. Let me go a little further here uh, by uh, contrasting the two criminals again. You you know that the first one, he he wants to be saved, right? He actually says to Jesus, save us, right? But he wants to be saved on his own terms. He doesn't want to turn from his sin. He just wants out of the mess he's in. He doesn't want Jesus. He just wants something from Jesus. The second criminal, however just wants Jesus. You know, he doesn't ask for Jesus to get him out of the circumstances that he is currently in. He just asks to be with Jesus. Now, it's interesting because in the other gospels, we're told that this second criminal actually was also mocking Jesus at one point. So apparently what happened is during these hours that he was hanging there with Jesus on the cross, he began to see who Jesus really is. He began, as he saw Jesus forgiving the people who were mocking him, and as he saw Jesus patiently enduring his suffering, his eyes were open, and he saw that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was the Son of God, that Jesus was the King, and that he was going to have a kingdom. And so he says, I don't want anything else. I want nothing else, but I want you. That's what salvation is, friends. Salvation is about gaining Jesus. It's about seeing him as the most valuable thing in the world and saying, I want him more than anything else. So I want to ask you today, um, is this true for you?
Do you want Jesus more than anything else? If not, here's what I want to just urge you to do today. I want you to look at Jesus on the cross offering you forgiveness for your sins. I want you to look at Jesus suffering in your place. I want you to look at Jesus taking the wrath for your sin, dying in your place, paying your penalty. I want you to look at the love that Jesus has for you today and with all of your heart cry out, he is everything I want, everything that I need.